0: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 10th day of February, 2008. I'd like to give a hearty commendation to all of my listeners who, over the last week, have helped to make the website explode. With last week's audio truth documentary about 9-11 truth quickly becoming the most downloaded episode in Corbett Report history, and that after only one week of release. Again, thank you very much for all of your efforts in getting the word out about this important truth documentary, and I'm glad to find that so many people have found it a valuable activist tool. Again, I encourage you to keep getting the word out and let people know about this important information. I'd also like to welcome all the new listeners who have followed the link from that episode to subscribe to this podcast. I hope you'll find that this podcast is an ongoing weekly source of useful news and information, free of corporate-controlled media spin. I encourage you to look back through the archives on the website, www.corbettreport.com, for past episodes of the Corbett Report. And I'd like to remind all my listeners that all of the documentation complete with links to the information used in today's episode, can be garnered from my website, corbettreport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T-Report.com. Under today's episode, you'll find a documentation list sorted by time index, which will take you directly to each and every one of the documents cited in this episode. And now it's time for the real news. This article comes from TheProgressive.org, exclusive The FBI Deputizes Business, February 7, 2008. Today, more than 23,000 representatives of private industry are working quietly with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. The members of this rapidly growing group, called InfraGuard, receive secret warnings of terrorist threats before the public does, and, at least on one occasion, before elected officials In return, they provide information to the government, which alarms the ACLU, but there may be more to it than that. One business executive who showed me his InfraGard card told me they have permission to shoot to kill in the event of martial law. InfraGard is a child of the FBI, says Michael Hirschman, the chairman of the advisory board of the InfraGard National Members Alliance and CEO of the Fairfax Group, an international consulting firm. Today's second story comes from the Superior Daily Telegram, February 8th, 2008. Minnesota Cops, school district. Okay to use tasers on students. Superior High School scored a dubious first last week when law enforcement officers subdued a student with a taser stun gun. The electronic devices have been part of the Superior Police Department's arsenal for the past two years. Last week, Officer Jeff Darst was the first to deploy one in a school. The target was a 15-year-old boy. Assistant Police Chief Chuck Lagess called the taser's use reasonable as officers and school administrators struggled to gain control of a violent situation. I'm not uncomfortable with it, School District Superintendent Jay Mitchell said. He said officers used necessary means to defuse a difficult situation. Finally, this week's third story comes from NationalPost.com. Jail Politicians Who Ignore Climate Science, Suzuki, February 7th, 2008. David Suzuki has called for political leaders to be thrown in jail for ignoring the science behind climate change. At a Montreal conference last Thursday, the prominent scientist, broadcaster, and Order of Canada recipient exhorted a packed house of 600 to hold politicians legally accountable for what he called an intergenerational crime. Though a spokesman said yesterday the call for imprisonment was not meant to be taken literally, Dr. Suzuki reportedly made similar remarks in an address at the University of Toronto last month. The proposal has lit up many conservative blogs since it was first reported by the McGill Daily on Monday. Addressing the McGill Business Conference on Sustainability, hosted by the Faculty of Management, Dr. Suzuki's wide-ranging speech warned against favoring the economy to the detriment of the ecology, the tar sands in northern Alberta being his prime example. You have lived your entire lives in a completely unsustainable period, he told students and fans. You all think growth and climate change is normal. It's not. Toward the end of his speech, Dr. Suzuki said that we can no longer tolerate what's going on in Ottawa and Edmonton, and then encouraged attendees to hold politicians to a greater green standard. What I would challenge you to do is to put a lot of effort into trying to see whether there's a legal way of throwing our so-called leaders into jail because what they're doing is a criminal act, said Dr. Suzuki, a former board member of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. It's an intergenerational crime in the face of all the knowledge and science from over 20 years. Welcome to episode 32 of the Corbett Report, Why Are We in Afghanistan? The answer to this question might seem self-evident to those who believe the unproblematically presented corporate-controlled media view of why we are in Afghanistan in the first place and what this fight really means. So first, to familiarize ourselves with the old argument of why we are in Afghanistan, let's listen to this recent report from the Daily Telegraph news service out of Britain which reported on a press conference given by Gordon Brown in December of last year about the role Britain is playing in the NATO operation in Afghanistan.
1: As Gordon Brown arrived into Afghanistan, British troops were engaged 70 miles away in the biggest battle they had faced in six years here, removing the Taliban from their stronghold town of Musaqala, a vital operation for the heart of Helmand, but not one that will hasten a British exit from the war-torn country. That's because the Prime Minister is set to tell British troops they will have to fight it out with the Taliban for the next 10 years or more. A hard sell for a stretched army and a war-tired public.
2: This is one of the most challenging of environments. It's one of the most difficult of tasks. It's the most testing of times. And it's one of the most important of missions. Because to win here and to defeat the Taliban and to make sure that we can give strength to the new democracy of Afghanistan is important in defeating terrorism all around the world.
1: The Prime Minister will use the military success of Musa Kala to claim Britain's efforts are having an effect. He wants military progress to go hand in hand with economic and social development. And with the wind in his sails yesterday, he took his political initiative to Kabul and a meeting with President Hamid Karzai, where he promised help to revive businesses, schools and healthcare. But he knows that still depends on whether the military can remove the Taliban once and for all, not just force them into temporary retreat.
0: So here we are presented with Gordon Brown's view of why NATO forces are in Afghanistan as we speak. And, of course, that goes back to September 11th and how ta- the Taliban supported al-Qaeda, who, of course, perpetrated the attacks of 9-11. Of course, even if you believe the 9-11 official fairy tale, you have to understand that 15 of the 19 supposed hijackers had their visas issued from Saudi Arabia. In fact, from a particular consulate in Saudi Arabia, the Jeddah consulate. And the one of the consular officials who used to work in the Jeddah office has gone on record testifying to the 9 11 Citizens Commission that at his time in the Jeddah Consulate office, his superiors, who were CIA field agents, regularly overrode his decision to deny visas to suspected terrorists on the understanding that these suspected terrorists were in fact U.S. agents. They were being brought into the U.S. for training by the CIA for Osama bin Laden to run his mujahideens in their fight against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Of course, all of this goes back to the fundamental lie of the war on terror, which is that Al-Qaeda was somehow created out of nothing in the mid-1990s by Osama bin Laden, suddenly becoming a major player on the world stage, and within a few short years managing to pull off the most spectacular terror attack the world has ever seen, 9-11. In fact, the truth is that al-Qaeda is an outgrowth of the Mujahideen warriors that were created, funded, and trained by the CIA in Afghanistan to counter the Soviet invasion of that country. Of course, don't take my word for that. Take the word of Robin Cook, who was Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs of the United Kingdom from 1997 to 2001, and he was also the leader of the House of Commons and the Lord President of the Council, who went on record on... July 8th, 2005, the day after the 7-7 bombings, in the Guardian newspaper with this quote. Bin Laden was, though, a product of a monumental miscalculation by Western security agencies. Throughout the 80s, he was armed by the CIA and funded by the Saudis to wage jihad against the Russian occupation of Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda, literally the database was originally the computer file of the thousands of Mujahideen who were recruited and trained with help from the CIA to defeat the Russians. Inexplicably, and with disastrous consequences, it never appears to have occurred to Washington that once Russia was out of the way, bin Laden's organization would turn its attention to the West. End quote. So we peel one layer off of the onion of lies and find another layer underneath, This layer being the blowback argument that somehow the CIA, with its billions of dollars of funding and its assets all over the world, including known CIA asset Osama bin Laden, somehow forgot about all of these Mujahideen fighters that they had armed, trained, and funded in the 1980s. And, oh, look at that, they came back to attack out of the blue on 9-11. Well, as listeners to the Corbett Report would know by now, I certainly don't believe this 9-11 fairy tale – And again, I urge you to look into Michael Springman's testimony to the 9-11 Commission that he was forced by CIA handlers in the Jeddah Consulate to allow known terrorists to come into the country so they could be trained by the U.S. military. But to get back to the storyline in Afghanistan, the argument goes that since the Taliban harbored these al-Qaeda terrorists, of course they must be removed from Afghanistan and brought to justice. Because, of course, the Bush Doctrine delivered on the evening of September 11th, 2001, indicated that America would not differentiate between the terrorists and those who harbored them. One wonders if this would include those who trained, funded, and created them, but maybe that's another argument. Regardless, the Taliban thus becomes the demons in this fairy tale, and the Afghanistan invasion was thus a logical consequence. This, of course, is just another layer on the onion of lies, so let's peel it back by taking a look at this story from BBC News from December 4th, 1997. Taliban in Texas for talks on gas pipeline. Quote, A senior delegation from the Taliban movement in Afghanistan is in the United States for talks with an international energy company that wants to construct a gas pipeline from Turkmenistan across Afghanistan to Pakistan. A spokesman for the company, Unical, said the Taliban were expected to spend several days at the company's headquarters in Sugarland, Texas. Unical says it has agreements both with Turkmenistan to sell its gas and with Pakistan to buy it. But despite the civil war in Afghanistan, Unical has been in competition with an Argentinian firm, Brightus, to actually construct the pipeline. Last month, the Argentinian firm, Bridas, announced that it was close to signing a $2 billion deal to build the pipeline, which would carry gas 1,300 kilometers from Turkmenistan to Pakistan across Afghanistan. A BBC regional correspondent says the proposal to build a pipeline across Afghanistan is part of an international scramble to profit from developing the rich energy resources of the Caspian Sea. With the various Afghan factions still at war... The project has looked from the outside distinctly unpromising. The thread of that story is picked up in 1998 when UNICAL issued a statement declaring that they would have to suspend the proposed pipeline across Afghanistan because of political instability in the region. The thread continues through 2001 when this article appeared in the Asia Times Online entitled, U.S. Policy on Taliban Influenced by Oil, authors. It reads in part: "Until August, the U.S. government saw the Taliban regime as a source of stability in Central Asia that would enable the construction of an oil pipeline across Central Asia from the rich oil fields in Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan through Afghanistan and Pakistan to the Indian Ocean. Until now," says the book, "Bin Laden, la vérité interdite," by authors Jean Charles Brisard and Guillaume Dasqui. The oil and gas reserves of Central Asia have been controlled by Russia. The Bush government wanted to change all that. But confronted with Taliban's refusal to accept U.S. conditions, this rationale of energy security changed into a military one, the authors claim. At one moment during the negotiations, the U.S. representatives told the Taliban, either you accept our offer of a carpet of gold, or we bury you under a carpet of bombs, end quote. So it's perhaps not a coincidence that the U.S. ended up attacking Afghanistan in the fall of that year, and installing a puppet president, Hamid Karzai, who just happened to be a former Unocal consultant. But that's probably not true, so you probably shouldn't bother looking that fact up for yourself by going to the documentation list on my homepage. And wait, there's yet another layer of lies to peel off of this onion. If you go back to the mainstream news sources, you'll find that, in fact, the U.S. government had been planning the invasion of Afghanistan since May of 2001, and the invasion orders were sitting on George Bush's desk waiting to be signed two days before 9-11. That comes not from some kooky conspiracist website. That comes from fas.org. The Federation of American Scientists, who have this information about NSPD-9, National Security Presidential Directive-9, Combating Terrorism. This information reads, quote, On April 1, 2004, the White House released the following characterization of this otherwise classified document. The NSPD called on the Secretary of Defense to plan for military options against Taliban targets in Afghanistan, including leadership, command control, air and air defense, ground forces, and logistics. The NSPD also called for plans against al-Qaeda and associated terrorist facilities in Afghanistan, including leadership, command control communications, training, and logistics facilities. In testimony before the 9 11 Commission on March 23, 2004, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld presented this description of the strategy contained in NSPD 9. The objectives of the new strategy were to eliminate the al Qaeda network, to use all elements of national power to do so diplomatic, military, economic, intelligence, information, and law enforcement, to eliminate sanctuaries for al Qaeda and related terrorist networks and if diplomatic efforts to do so failed, to consider additional measures. The essence of this strategy was contained in NSPD-9. It was the first major substantive national security decision directive issued by this administration. It was presented for decision by principals on September 4, 2001, seven days before September 11. The directive was signed by the president with minor changes and a preamble to reflect the events of 9-11 on October 25th, 2001. End quote. Again, think about that. The Defense Secretary, Donald Rumsfeld, admitting that the entire strategy for the global war on terror had been drawn up as one of the first national security decision directives of the Bush administration, and was waiting to be signed by the principals involved on September 4th, 2001. What an amazing coincidence But surely we have come to the last layer of the layers of lies involved in what got us into the war in Afghanistan, right? Wrong. The invasion had nothing to do with capturing al-Qaeda members or bringing them to justice, because as we remember from episode 14 of the Corbett Report, al-Qaeda doesn't exist, or at least not in the way that it's presented in the mainstream media. Now, we all know that the U.S. government was offering cash rewards to tribal farmers in the hills of Afghanistan for turning in al-Qaeda members, which resulted in untold numbers of people being scooped up in dragnets, some of them being shipped off to Guantanamo. But what isn't well understood is how Osama bin Laden and the top leadership of al-Qaeda affected their escape when they were cornered in the hills of Tora Bora in 2001. For more information on that, let's turn to a clip from an excellent documentary which was featured in the first episode of The Corbett Report. We'll be featuring a different clip today. The documentary I'm referring to is 9-11 Press for Truth, which again is widely available on video sites, and I truly suggest that you watch the entire documentary But today, let's listen to a clip which discusses a timeline of the events in 2001, including the escape of key elements of Al Qaeda's leadership under the watchful eye of the U.S. military.
2: America's apparently clear military victory in Afghanistan was not so clear cut to Paul Thompson. The war ended very quickly. But in the end, the US was only able to capture or kill one major Al-Qaeda figure and no Taliban figures.
3: You know, the fact is right now today, we don't have any high-ranking Taliban or Al-Qaeda. We haven't really captured anybody, one or two on the fringe.
2: His understanding of the government's actions before 9-11 now fundamentally changed. Thompson decided to take a similar look into what happened in Afghanistan. The press never looked very closely at how so many of these leaders were able to escape. However, if you piece together a number of different news accounts,
3: you can begin to understand the story. Early November,
2: the London Times reported bin Laden's closest advisors all escaped in a late-night convoy from the Afghan capital of Kabul. An eyewitness reported, we don't understand how they weren't all killed the night before because they came in a convoy of at least a thousand cars and trucks it must have been easy for American pilots to see the headlines by the 10th bin Laden had joined the convoy in Jalalabad an intelligence official told Knight Ritter newspapers it was obvious that this area was to be the base for an exodus to Pakistan we were amazed that nothing was done to prepare for it On November 14th, the Northern Alliance captured Jalalabad. That night, 1,000 fighters and a convoy of several hundred vehicles escaped again, this time with bin Laden, driving hours to the fortress in Tora Bora. The U.S. bombed the nearby Jalalabad airport, but apparently did not attack the convoy. November 15th. At the cave complexes of Tora Bora, an estimated 1,600 of bin Laden's fighters are now surrounded. The most important battle of the war begins.
3: U.S. warplanes are keeping a close eye on mountain passes. U.S. special forces are working with Pakistani troops on the border to block possible escape routes.
2: While there were two main escape routes, Newsweek reported that the U.S. bombed only one. Using the other route, Hundreds of Al-Qaeda and Taliban, including senior leaders, escaped. In the wake of the attacks, eyewitnesses told Britain's The Daily Telegraph that they were shocked that the U.S. had surrounded Tora Bora only on three sides. Bin Laden walked out of the Tora Bora cave complex and into Pakistan with a number of loyal
3: followers. Of course we're after Saddam Hussein, I mean uh, bin Laden. He's, 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 he's isolated.
2: In August 2005, a story broke that gave Paul Thompson a missing piece of the puzzle. In an exclusive interview with Newsweek, the CIA field commander in Tora Bora during the invasion, Gary Bernson, broke his silence. He explained that his intelligence operatives had tracked bin Laden to Tora Bora.
4: Mr. Bernstein feels so strongly about getting this story out uh, and getting his book published that he actually resigned two years short of retirement uh, from the CIA in order to publish his book. At the time of this interview, he was required to speak
2: through his attorney until the CIA cleared his book for publication.
4: At various points in time, they did have, to my understanding, definitive intelligence as to his general location within Tora Bora. I can't go into detail as to the actual uh, sources of the intelligence and the collection methods because those remain classified. However, we had Osama bin Laden essentially cornered in Tora Bora, and for whatever reasons, we did not do what was necessary uh, in order to ensure that he did not escape.
2: The goal has never been to to get bin Laden. Obviously, that's desirable. Uh, it's interesting. I just read a piece by some analysts that said, Uh, You may not want to go after the top people in these organizations. You may have more effect by going after the middle managers because they're harder to replace. Toward the end of the war, when all eyes were on Tora Bora, the news media missed another major story. Again, thousands of Taliban and Al-Qaeda escaped without drawing U.S. fire, this time from the northern city of Kunduz. The Taliban's only stronghold in the region has all but fallen to the forces of the Northern Alliance, Once again, the door was left open for escape.
5: Our side in that battle had the enemy surrounded. There were a reported, perhaps, 8,000 enemy forces in there.
3: They had the cream of the crop of al-Qaeda caught.
2: Journalist Seymour Hersh later broke this story in The New Yorker magazine, briefly sparking TV news coverage.
3: And from there, all of a sudden, one night around Thanksgiving, in the middle of the siege, an air corridor was set up between Khandus and northern Pakistan, and at night, Pakistani relief planes regularly flew through that corridor. It was a very orderly, organized thing, that armed men would stand on the tarmac waiting for a flight that would come in, and then they would be taken out. For as many as four or five thousand. They were not only Al-Qaeda, but maybe even some of Bin Laden's immediate family were flown out on those evacuations.
0: It had to be done with the blessing of Musharraf, Exactly, it? and of the United States.
3: When I tell you it comes at the level of Don Rumsfeld. it has to.
0: What we're describing here is something which would clearly be noticed by the United States. One or two, maybe not, okay? An airlift of these
4: proportions, it certainly would. This is the most secure space on the face of the earth right now. If someone's moving over Afghanistan, the United States knows about it clearly.
3: No plane could fly from Kanduz to Pakistan without getting shot down unless we let it happen. And we let it happen, and I think there's just no other way to explain it.
0: So, what? The NATO forces aren't there in Afghanistan to bring the Taliban and al-Qaeda to justice? Well, what are they there for, then? Well, for that answer, let's take a look at uh, this article from CorbettReport.com. 6th of February, 2008, headline, Supporting the Taliban. Rice and Brown meet on Afghanistan meltdown as it emerges that the UK was plotting to build military training centers for the Taliban. Quote, the BBC News website posted an article today on the meeting this week between U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and British PM Gordon Brown, who are set to discuss recent problems with Afghanistan. In a decidedly obscure reference, the article states that they will look for ways to repair relations with Afghan President Hamid Karzai, who has rejected much of the international strategy for his country. What this vacuous phrase seeks to downplay is Kabul's bombshell accusation earlier this week that the UK was secretly plotting to build military bases to train Taliban fighters in Helmand province. The plan was to offer the fighters military training and equip them with high-tech communication equipment to persuade them to switch sides and join local militias. In fact, such is the Afghan government's rage over the issue that they expelled two diplomats from the country on Christmas Day once their plans were discovered, and President Karzai has gone on record to publicly blame Britain for the return of the Taliban in the South. Not that you'd get any of this information by reading the BBC article. End quote. That is indeed some spectacularly bombshell information and extremely important as it goes right to the heart of this phony counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, being paid for with the blood of the soldiers who are serving in our country's names. Indeed, the Taliban has been fighting an amazingly effective insurgency against NATO forces in Afghanistan, and if anything, they're only getting stronger, a fact that's been noted time and time again in the controlled corporate media. With stories going back even to December of 2006 from the New York Times, Taliban and allies tighten grip in north of Pakistan, which reads in part, quote, Islamic militants are using a recent peace deal with the government to consolidate their hold in northern Pakistan, vastly expanding their training of suicide bombers and other recruits for fortifying alliances with Al-Qaeda and foreign fighters, diplomats and intelligence officials from several nations say. The result, they say, is virtually a Taliban mini-state. The militants, the officials say, are openly flouting the terms of the September Accord in North Waziristan, under which they agreed to end cross-border help for the Taliban insurgency that revived in Afghanistan with new force this year." End quote. The article goes on to detail how the Taliban insurgency is getting stronger aided by this regrouping of Taliban in Pakistan. But as with all issues of geopolitics, one needs to follow the money and find out where the funding for this Taliban force is coming from. The controlled corporate media have their own ideas about where the Taliban and al-Qaeda are deriving their money.
3: The FBI tonight is investigating students and teachers at an Iowa community college. Agents reportedly want to know whether computer software there is being pirated and then sold to al-Qaeda. Officials at the Northwest Iowa community college campus say that there have been some problems with excessive bandwidth use, but they say they know nothing at all of an al Qaeda connection in the case. They were on campus for one day and uh really that's the extent of the investigation and, and it centers around uh use or illegal use of uh the college's computer system with regard to copywritten or Uh, licensed material.
0: That theory, I think it's safe to say, resides in the realm of the cartoon politics, which we talked about in our episode on torture a few weeks ago. You've got a lot of internet bandwidth usage there. You downloading illegal MP3s again? You must be Al-Qaeda. We should probably send you off to Guantanamo, torture you a little bit. Torture's good after all. All kidding aside, I think we can look for a more nuanced, more intelligent way of finding out the source of the money for the Taliban, and I think it's safe to say that we can start with a rather obvious idea, opium. Opium, of course, has always been one of the key crops of Afghanistan, and historical trends in its production and cultivation have always closely monitored political developments in the region. For proof of that, let's turn to another article from the Corbett Report, this time from 28th of August 2007. This article headlined, In Harper's Fields, the Poppy's Blow, and it reads in part, quote, Canadian militarism has long been associated with the poppy, but that association is taking on new meaning amid reports that Afghan opium production has reached record levels under NATO's watch. What's more, the report notes that production has decreased in northern and central Afghanistan, where there is widespread poverty, and is surging in southern and eastern Afghanistan, where Canadians are stationed. This fact alone should be worrying enough to Canadians familiar with the long-established history of intelligence agencies' implicit support of the opium trade through operations like Air America as Alfred McCoy, a professor of Southeast Asian history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, reveals in his book, The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade. Afghanistan opium production increased from 100 tons in 71 to 2,000 tons in 91 due to CIA support of the Mujahideen, and increased in 2001 after the fall of the Taliban to 4,600 tons. At the very least, Canada cannot claim that the boom in opium production, which hit 8,200 tons this year, was an unexpected result of plunging the country into chaos and installing a puppet president who just happened to consult for Unocal, a company which just happened to spend a great deal of effort in the 1990s lobbying the Taliban to allow construction of a pipeline through Afghanistan to carry natural gas from Turkmenistan to Pakistan. End quote. Indeed, U.S.-led NATO efforts to eradicate the opium crop in Afghanistan seem about as staged and unrealistic as attempts by the Taliban to do the same when they were in charge of Afghanistan back in the 1990s, i.e. they don't really want the drugs to stop flowing. What's the larger picture here, and who are the actors in this global drug trade? Let's turn to Sibel Edmonds for that answer. Of course, listeners to the Corporate Report will remember from the 9-11 audio documentary released last week that Sibel Edmonds is an FBI translator who was hired in the wake of 9-11 to translate documents with relevance to the 9-11 investigation. What she knows has never been allowed to be fully disclosed, as she is under a gag order placed on her by John Ashcroft, who invoked the state secrets privilege in 2004 to prevent her from telling what she knows and to retroactively classify what she had already testified to Congress about her information. Again, the Corbett Report had an article earlier this year about Sibel Edmonds going further than ever before about what she knows, which involves State Department officials and other high-placed U.S. government agency workers with ties to Turkish diplomats, nuclear state secrets, and the man who funded the 9-11 hijackers. In this clip, in an interview with Armenian Weekly, Sibel Edmonds talks about the global drug trade and how that ties into this network of moles operating in the U.S. government.
5: In fact, there are issues and there are cases that would help with their national security because The same activities involve also money laundering or certain narcotic activities. All you have to do is go and look at the State Department's own reports on Turkey and the opiums. 92% of the heroin supplied in Europe is coming through Turkey. It's being marketed, it's being distributed by Turkish individuals. UK, France, you look at it and this is not classified. This is within the State Department's own report. What are we doing about it because... The poppies are being produced in Afghanistan. This is what I try to tell people. And, and Taliban-esque people are getting benefits and, and, and the Al-Qaeda people are getting benefits of these poppies being sold to these individuals in Turkey who then distribute and provide 92% of Europe's heroin market. Have you touched that? I mean, they are our allies after all, supposedly. Have you said clamp down on these narcotic activities because it's helping the terrorists, and the terrorists are threats to our national security. No, we haven't, have we? We yes, have especially not. Especially
1: in the case of uh, Afghanistan, I mean, we have traced very clear uh, where the money is going. It's, it's it's either going to these clans and groups of people, and also it's going to the Taliban. And, and I mean, this is not a secret.
0: No,
5: Time Magazine ran a piece about eleven pages how the uh, Afghanistan uh, you know, opium production has increased. And, uh, and then they also put the value of that opium production and there were congressional statements there from various congressmen, including Walter Jones, who went to Afghanistan saying, a lot of it goes to support al-Qaeda and Taliban. The number was about somewhere between $38 billion a year to $50 billion a year. Now, this Time Magazine article, limits the issue of these poppy production to some, yeah. you know, to some farmers. You're looking at these, I'm not, I'm not putting them down, you're looking at these Afghanis in shalvars, you know, you know with their long beard who are cultivating the poppies there. These people, they're not capable of managing $50 billion industry. They have a very, you know, their own little share. The real production of labs for processing these into heroin from taking it through the Balkan route by, by Turkish individuals, and these are the people, again, you're not looking at street-level thugs in Turkey. You're looking at Turkish military, you're looking at Turkish uh, police, you're looking at Turkish MIT. A professor in Turkey in 2000 issued this, this documented report saying that a quarter of Turkey's economy relies on heroin production and distribution. Of course, he had to escape the country and go to Germany and have political asylum because he committed treason by by criticizing the Turkish government. But the Time magazine article, my point is, it didn't talk about the main actors, the big people, the powerful ones, who are distributing, processing, uh, marketing, laundering the proceeds, you know. Those people were not touched. If you go and look at the reports, you're saying the countries involved, Turkey, you know, Cyprus, portion of Turkey, United Emirates, Dubai. None of those issues were conveniently touched by Time magazine article. So any American, any citizen who would read this article would say, oh, there are some bearded Shalwar people who are making $50 billion a year and helping Al-Qaeda and Taliban. And this is so sad because, again, in this case, the culprit is Time magazine because, no, that's not the case. But who prevents... The, the 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 media or is is it happening from publishing the real facts, the Turks, their involvement, United Emirates and their position in laundering this money, Pakistan and narcotics, it's saying oops, they are our allies. And we don't wanna touch them, we don't wanna turn them off. Uh, in fact, we have a lot of good business diplomatic, sensitive diplomatic relations as John Ashcroft put it there now, if one of them were in the part of the axis of evil if one of them was Syria, or if one of them was Iran, or one of them was Korea or before Iraq, if it was Saddam oh, you would see this thing they would raise, how Saddam's country and people are helping Taliban with their finances and helping Al-Qaeda with these cases, but there was this big it's our very close allies, the ones that are giving billions of dollars of AIDS, the ones that the aid comes back and buys our weapons. We can't mess around with things like that.
0: So surprisingly, the self-same moles with connections to the man who funded the 9-11 hijackers are tied with the Turkish diplomatic community, which is involved in the refining of opium into heroin for distribution and sale in Europe. The ties run deep, and as the industry is worth an annual 50 billion dollars, you can bet there are some major players involved in this game, probably not the poor poppy farmers that Sibel Edmonds referred to in that interview. We're left then with serious questions about the NATO mission in Afghanistan. Why did we go there in the first place? To get the Taliban, or to get an oil pipeline? Was it coincidence that an ex-UNOCAL consultant was installed as the puppet president? When was the Afghan invasion actually planned? And why is opium production going through the roof under NATO's watch? All of these are extremely pertinent questions. From a Canadian perspective, the Afghan debacle threatens to overturn Canada's good name in the international community, which it has received through its work in peacekeeping missions around the world. The issue broke in the national media in 2007. With reports like this one from CBC News, latest Afghan abuse claim sparks cries for O'Connor to resign. From April 23, 2007, it reads in part, quote, The opposition made calls for the defense minister's resignation Monday after the publication of a damning report about the torture Afghan detainees face when Canadian soldiers transfer them to Afghan security forces. The Globe and Mail published interviews Monday with 30 men who say they were beaten, starved, frozen, and choked after they were handed over to Afghanistan's National Directorate of Security, a notorious intelligence police force. Some of the men said they were whipped with bundles of electrical cables until they fell unconscious. Others said they were stripped naked and left outside all night with temperatures in Kandahar dipping below freezing. One man said he was hung by his ankles and beaten for eight days, while another said he was choked while a plastic bag was held over his head. In the House of Commons Monday afternoon, the NDP, Bloc Québécois, and liberal parties attacked the conservative government about the allegations and called for Defense Minister Gordon O'Connor to step down. The torture in Afghanistan is awful, NDP Jack Layden said. Indeed, the story has been an ongoing one, recently taking rather bizarre turns with the government having suspended transfers of detainees to the Afghan security forces, but not willing to reveal any details about detainees in Afghanistan because of reasons of national security. We pick that up from a C News report from January 28, 2008. Harper refuses to discuss Afghan detainees, which reads in part, quote, Prime Minister Stephen Harper said he will not explain what Canada is doing with its prisoners in Afghanistan, despite being pounded with questions about the government's mysterious detainee policy. Harper cited national security as the reason for his government's refusal to answer questions like, where are they? Who has them? How many are there? How many have disappeared? How many are actually enemy combatants, and how many are civilians accused of helping the Taliban? Harper's appeal to national security left opposition politicians scratching their heads Monday as they wondered why Canadians know far more about U.S. prisoners than they do about their own. One human rights lawyer has described the issue as a matter of national embarrassment, not national security. But Harper stuck to his guns. "'We are not going to publicly discuss how many Afghan prisoners we have and where they are,' he said in French during a news conference." These are military operational details, and we are never going to answer those questions. End quote. For an idea of just how ridiculous the government's position on the Afghan detainees are, let's listen to this report filed by a Canadian press reporter who's discussing the Afghan detainee issue from a public relations perspective.
4: Now, I'm not a military analyst, but I could tell you that this certainly does sound like a communications quagmire at the very least. Uh, Over the last year, this government has made so many mistakes on the detainee file, it's unbelievable. I mean, it started off as as an embarrassment right off the get-go last year when the government contradicted itself and changed its story almost every day about what was going on with detainees. And in the meantime, making fun of their opponents for even raising the issue in the House of Commons, calling them Taliban sympathizers. The Prime Minister characterized the opposition uh, uh, as this at one point. Indeed, we have asked the government a lot of questions about detainees, and the government instead, to insult us, to insult uh, insult the opposition, saying that we show uh, sympathy for the Taliban because we want Canada to do, in fact its duty as a civilized country, all the values that we are fighting for in Afghanistan include the fact that when you have detainees you consider them as human
3: beings and you protect them against torture.
4: And we find out that towards the end of the year they received credible evidence of torture and stopped transferring detainees to their Afghan captors And they didn't inform the Canadian public. They didn't inform uh, Parliament. They didn't inform uh, the panel working on a new course for Canada and Afghanistan, charting our future policy. They weren't told about it. And we find out about it because civil libertarians are suing the government. That's the only reason we know anything about this now, because they received documents after this extensive court fight. They've got them in hand, and it talks about electrocution and whipping and beating uh, into unconsciousness. And then finally, when they try to find out more about it, they're told that they can't, but for reasons of national security, so we don't know where they are. Are they being held by the Americans? Are they being transferred on the field? We know for a fact that some of them are missing and unaccounted for. Afghanistan's got a history of extrajudicial killings. Have they been killed? So civil libert- libertarians say that this might one day be seen as a stain on Canada's human rights record, Things we don't even know what's happening. And today, after hearing from the Prime Minister's office, That they'd never heard from the military what had happened to detainees, which is kind of the equivalent, I suppose, of the the prime minister's office hearing about a Taliban offensive and not telling the military. It it sounded kind of ridiculous uh, that they might not have been informed of such a highly politicized issue uh, or a development on a highly politicized file uh, by the military. And today we're hearing that the Prime Minister's office has retracted that earlier statement, that they weren't made aware of it. So all of this has been a one big disaster from a communication standpoint from the get-go, from last year up until today.
0: Now we stand at a critical point where our voices may be heard politically. At the beginning of today's episode, Gordon Brown pleaded with the British public to allow him another 10 years in Afghanistan. And recently, Condoleezza Rice has gone on record, asking for continued long-term fight against the Taliban from all NATO countries. But Canada may be in a unique position to bring this Afghanistan charade to an end next year. That comes from an article from OttawaCitizen.com, headlined Pressures On, which reads in part, quote, Liberal leader Stefan Dion warned yesterday the country could be headed for a spring election unless the Harper government backs down from its position on the Afghanistan war. If the government doesn't want to do anything to explore that our views might be compatible after February 2009, the government will look, as usual, intransigent, and the consequence may be an election, Mr. Dion told reporters in Vancouver. Mr. Dion was responding to the government's introduction earlier in the day of a confidence motion calling for an extension of the Afghanistan mission until the end of 2011. End quote. I certainly hope that today's episode has provided some food for thought about what the mission in Afghanistan really represents. And for Canadians who might still be undecided about whether they would like to bring down the government over this issue, I refer you to this story from Canwest News Service, September 29, 2007 headline, Blackwater Training Some Canadian Troops. It reads in part, quote, The Canadian forces are using a controversial private security firm to train some of its troops sent to Afghanistan. Select Canadian soldiers have been sent to Blackwater, USA, in North Carolina for specialized training in bodyguard and shooting skills. Other soldiers have taken counterterrorism evasive driving courses with the private military company, now at the center of an investigation into the killings of Iraqi civilians and mounting concerns about the aggressive tactics of its workers in the field. End quote. That's it for today. Thank you again for joining me for this edition of The Corbett Report. Thank you for continuing to spread the word about The Corbett Report's 9-11 Truth documentary and look for some cosmetic changes to the website in the days to come. Please check out our articles and videos, which are being updated on a frequent basis throughout the week. Join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report.
3: to Pakistan without getting shot down unless we let it happen and we let it happen and I think there's just no other way to explain it